What I'm about to tell you are real people. Some of them I know personally. But I'm going to ask you, what would you do? What would you do if you were required to walk in front of a statue of Caesar and simply take a little pinch of salt and drop it on the statue and say, Caesar is Lord. And if you did that, you would demonstrate your submission to the state. And if you did not, you would be killed. What would you do? There was a man named Polycarp. He was a bishop. He was in his 80s. And he was asked to drop some, just a, a pinch. Come on. You're an old man. Just a pinch of salt. We don't want to kill you. He said, for 80 and six years, I've been serving him, and he's never done me any wrong. I will not betray my Lord and Master. And they burned him at the stake. What would you do if you were a woman by the name of Corey, living in the country of Holland in 1940? And you believed that after your country, by the way, had been overrun by the Nazis, you believed that what they were up to and what they were doing, particularly with the Jewish people, was wrong. Because you believed the Bible. And so you decided you were going to hide Jews in your house, in a false wall behind the bedroom. And the Gestapo came to your front door and said, are you hiding any Jews here? And she said, no, flat out lie. Of course, they were hiding Jews. They got caught. Corey made it out alive, but her sister and her father were killed in the concentration camp. What would you do? If you were a pastor and you believed strongly also that the Nazis and what they were doing was wrong, and you were a pacifist, you did not believe in killing people, but you got, were in, you had to be in the military, otherwise they killed you in Germany at the time, and this man was German, his name was Dietrich, and using his position as a military officer, he decided he would participate in a plot to kill Adolf Hitler. Maybe you've seen the movie, Valkyrie. That's the plot. The plot did not succeed. Hitler was wounded, but not killed. Dietrich was found, found complicit in the attempt to kill Hitler. And just before the war ended, they put him to death. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. What would you do if you lived in the country where I lived in the 1970s? From 75 to 78, I was in the country at the time called Swaziland. And one of the ceremonies that every year that they had in the country of Swaziland is that all the maidens in the kingdom, that is, young girls that were not married, paraded topless in front of the king. It was an annual ceremony. What would you do if you were a, a Christian girl? What would you do if you are a married woman and you got pregnant in China under the one-child policy, which has been dropped now, they realized it was a disaster. And you're pregnant and you're having your second child. And the government says, you must abort that baby. As Carol told us about today. What would you say? What would you do? It comes from the government. What would you do if you lived in a country where it was illegal to go to church or to speak about Jesus? What would you do? What if you lived in Mexico? And the man about whom I'm speaking, his name is Eduardo. He was in our church in Colorado. And Eduardo decided he was an illegal, that he was going to go back to his home in Mexico to tell his family about Jesus. He went back to his little town, and the drug cartels moved in. And one of the demands of the drug cartels was that they wanted the, his daughters, and he had three of them, 
to be available to the drug cartels for sex. And he and his fellow citizens of that little town armed themselves, got involved in a drug fight, in a gunfight, and Eduardo was killed. We had his funeral in Longmont. What would you do? Would you take up arms to protect your daughters from the drug cartels? What would you do? What would you do if you were a pastor in Canada? On January 8th of this year, a law was passed describing heterosexuality as a myth. And that counseling that does not align with this new bill, it's Bill C-4, carries a potential five-year jail sentence. That happened this year in our neighbor to the north. What would you do? These are real people. What would you do if you're my friend named Gary? He's a missionary in Indonesia. And someone sent him a package from the United States, and he went to the post office to pick up his package. And when he did so, they said, um, you have to pay a bribe to get your package. He said, I'm a Christian. I don't pay bribes. They said, fine. We'll keep your package, and we're going to charge you now rent on your package. And within days, the rent is higher than the worth of the package. But you still have to pay the rent. So if you do not pay the bribe, all your money is gone. They take everything you have. By law, what would you do? These are not hypothetical situations. These are real people. Several of them are my own friends that I know well. What would you do? What would you do if you came across a, a government that told you that you had to do certain things that you believed deeply were, were wrong or prohibited you from doing things that you knew God wanted you to do? What would you do? Well, today, we're going to look at a text of Scripture which is going to help us to figure out what should we do. It's, of course, as Regina told us about today, it's the passage about, we call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their real names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the names they were given by the Babylonians, trying to coerce them, manipulate them into the Babylonian lifestyle. We know them by their Babylonian names. And today we're going to see what they did. And so if you have a Bible, our text today is going to be Daniel chapter 3. Now remember, Daniel chapter 2 ends with Daniel interpreting a dream that the king, Nebuchadnezzar, had about a statue with a head of gold. And then Daniel says, this dream, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. So guess what happens to him? The gold goes to his head. And so now he constructs in chapter 3 a statue made of gold, maybe in honor to himself, because Daniel had told them that he was the head of gold. And so here's chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the Parva province of Babylon. Now, when this takes place, we don't know. We don't know how much, long, how much after what took place in Daniel chapter 2 was recorded. We don't know that. It could have been uh, a year. could have been many years. Scholars think it's quite a few years later that this event happened. But King Nebuchadnezzar decided to build a statue Nine feet wide, that's not very wide, actually, if it's 90 feet tall. That's three times the size, more than three times the size of this building. It is roughly the shape of the Washington Monument, but not nearly as high. 
The Washington Monument is about 500 feet high. This one's only one-fifth of that size. But it's the same kind of shape, like a, a huge obelisk. That's what he made. And it was probably not made out of pure gold because there wasn't enough gold in his whole kingdom to do that out of pure gold. It was overlaid with gold. So he made a gold statue, probably in honor to himself, and he set it up in what was called the Plain of Dura. Now, we don't know where the Plain of Dura is, but it's quite interesting. The Plain of Dura was in the area of Babylon. There was another building built in the plains of Babylon, and that building was called the Tower of Babel. That's where we get the name Babylon from. So in the very same place where this ziggurat, this temple was built, where the people said, we're going to build a temple all the way to God. And God, of course, put an end to that. The Nebuchadnezzar decides he's going to build an image in honor to himself. Because after all, he is the most powerful man in the world. And so what does he do? This is verse 2. He then summoned the satraps and the prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. And so the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. So after this image was built, and it probably took quite a while for that to take place, he called all the bigwigs from his huge kingdom to come to the plains near Babylon, and uh, they were going to have a big gathering of dedication for this statue, which is often the case. Anytime, anywhere in the world, a great monument is built, they always have a dedication. This was the dedication service. And when you have a dedication, who was invited? Well, that's obvious. Who's who? Everyone who's important is invited. And that's why you have this list of these seven groups of leaders who were all invited. Because remember, Nebuchadnezzar's realm is, includes many, many countries, many, many different languages, all kinds of leaders. They all gathered together in this place. And then it says in verse 4, Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Well, this is the Babylonian Philharmonic Orchestra that, of course, is at the dedication service, which, uh, which if you dedicate anything, you will always have a big band there. You will always have probably the best band you have. And this one's composed of all kinds of instruments, which they had. Remember, we're talking 2,500 years ago. They gather them all together. And interestingly, there's music. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar was wise to use instrumental music because it could stir the people's emotions and make it easy for him to manipulate them and win their submission and obedience. Throughout history, music and song have played an important role in strengthening nationalism, motivating conquest, and inspiring people to act. Music has the power so to grip human thoughts and emotions 
that people are transformed from being free agents into becoming mere puppets. Music can be used as a wonderful tool and treasure from the Lord or as a destructive weapon from Satan. That's Warren Wiersbe said that. Of course, at a dedication service, you'll always have music, and music is powerful. I, I think it's something for this church even to, to, to keep in mind. You know, sometimes we have groups like this this morning sing for us, and we say, oh, that's kind of the preliminaries to the sermon. It is not. First of all, our worship is directed to God. That's who we're singing to. We're not singing for ourselves. We're singing to Him. But interestingly, I have noticed in all of my years and many, many people I've dealt with, oftentimes what sticks in people's minds after coming to church is not the sermon. It's the music. It's the music that sticks in our minds. That's what goes through our brains. So it's very important for us to to consider how we worship because that's a big part of who we become. Nebuchadnezzar knew that. And now he's going to use the Philharmonic Orchestra of Babylon for a nefarious purpose, namely to promote idolatry. Idolatry of whom? Idolatry of himself. Now, what was he thinking? (laughs) Have you thought about yourself? What is he thinking? Is he just an egomaniac? Yeah, probably. He wants people to think that he's some great God. Maybe he's trying to use this statue and bringing all of these people together to unify his disparate uh, uh, empire. Maybe what he doesn't know is that behind the scenes, Satan is orchestrating this to reproduce what happened at Babel, Babel, the Tower of Babel. We don't know, but we see politics at work. What is politics all about? First of all, oftentimes about the abuse of power. And here we have a massive abuse of power. Rather than using political power to, for the welfare, the thriving of human beings, he's using that power to push his will on the people. It's egomania. I remember reading in People magazine some years ago about a man who worked in the White House, I believe as a butler or something like that, for multiple presidents. And in the article, they asked him things about each of the presidents, and he said nice things about them. He didn't say bad things. But then they asked him the question, is there anything that all of these occupants of the White House have in common? And he said, oh, yes, big egos. (laughs) Big egos. Well, who's dumb enough to take that job without a big ego? (laughs) No one. There's no human being who would actually take that job thinking you could do it without an ego that's oversized. Because the truth is, no one can do that. It's impossible. But here again, we have a man with a huge ego and massive power at his um, disposal who utilizes civic pride to manipulate compliance to his regime, trying to seek religious cohesion, getting rid of the people of Israel, and he promises to punish those who do not agree with what he's doing. There's politics gone to seed. Now, We live in a time, as you know, in America today, where we're deeply, deeply, deeply polarized. The very issue that uh, that Carol spoke about today, terrible polarization. What does God's word say about us with regard to our government? Actually, the word of God is very clear. As Christians, we submit to the governing authorities. That's what the Bible says. Now, we're going to see there's a, a limit to that. 
But in general, we as God's people submit to the governing authorities. And remember, I think I told this, talked about this when we were in the book of, um, of Romans. Four things the Bible says that we're supposed to give to our government. One, we obey. There's a line that they can cross. But here's what Romans 13.1 says. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. We obey. Number two, we pray. This is First Timothy. This is um, you know, or um, this is First Timothy chapter two. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We obey. We pray. Thirdly, we pay. That means pay our taxes. This is what God says. This is why you pay your taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. We obey, we pray, we pay, and sometimes we disobey. And that's what we're coming to next. Because now we're going to see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are commanded by the king, the governing authority, to do something that is explicitly contrary to the word of God. And the next section, we're going to see the accusations. These are verses 8 to 12. At this same time, some astrologers or Chaldeans, these are the native Babylonians. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is made up of satraps and prefects and governors from scores of different countries with many different languages. But the, but the Chaldeans, or the astrologers, they're the natives. So here's the natives. At that time, some of the natives came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. They tried to make that smarmy because that's what exactly it probably was. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now, these are some of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's colleagues. These are some of their fellow bureaucrats whose lives would have been gone if Daniel hadn't spared their lives. They conveniently forgot that. But these are Jews who are living as administrators, high-level administrators in the Babylonian government above the Babylonians. And the Babylonians are jealous. They hate their guts, and they want them gone. And so they're thrilled when they see that these three Hebrews will not worship this statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so they denounce them, probably because of jealousy. What a terrible vice jealousy is. I'll bet if I could ask the people who are here today, have you ever encountered jealousy in your place of work? Maybe you were promoted to a position and your peers 
thought that they should have been promoted, not you, and they don't like you. Or maybe you're really good at your work. And because and if you're good at your work, you're in trouble, <laughs> to be honest with you. People will, will dislike you if you're good because it makes them feel, feel bad. And whatever the case was, here now the accusers come forward. Now, why? Why did they accuse Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Well, we know several reasons. Those Jews, there's racism there. Anti-Semitism is there. We already realize that there's, there's professional jealousy. Maybe there's religious prejudice, who knows, or maybe ethnic. Maybe they're, 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 they want to be loyal to the state, but deeply behind all of it, there's hatred against God's people. That's what's behind all of it. And of course, if you want to get rid of God's people, you've got to come up with some accusations. Their accusations are, um, they're insubordinate to you, king. They don't like to follow you. And besides, they've got high positions. They don't, they're, not, they're not thankful like they should be. They should be glad to bow down to your statue because after all, you gave them a really good job. And by the way, they're not pious. These are not godly people because they do not bow down to our gods and they disrespect you, king. How can you put up with this kind of people in your kingdom? And the king says, you're right. Now, one of the questions I suspect you're probably asking is, where's Daniel? Where's Daniel? He's not in this chapter. He tells us about it, but he's not there. Well, we don't know where he is. The major suggestion is that he is um, away on state business somewhere. Remember, to go from one part of this kingdom to another would take you months and months and months. And uh, this event that we're seeking, we're talking about today takes place in one place at one particular time. Daniel is gone somewhere. But we find a phenomenon going on here that the Bible speaks of, particularly Jesus, over and over and over again. Here are the words of Jesus. He's speaking to his disciples. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus again. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. This is Jesus again. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear that their deeds may be disposed. I mean, may be um, exposed. This is Jesus again. If the world hates you, never mind. Keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would hate. The world would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And this is the writings of the Apostle Paul. I don't like this verse. In fact, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I didn't make that up. I just saw it in the Bible. In fact, everyone, I think that everyone means, I think that means everyone. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It goes with the territory. One of the books I might have mentioned to you before, it's called The Great Evangelical Recession, written by John Dickerson in 2013. One of his chapters is entitled, Hated. He talks about how in the United States of America, there's a greatly increasing hatred for evangelicals. And this is before the Trump administration, by the way. Quote, less than one in four college and university professors have negative feelings about Muslims. 
This is a poll of over 1,000 university professors. About 25% have negative feelings about Muslims. That's sad. 3% of our university professors have negative feelings about Jews. That's better. Should be zero. And 53% have negative feelings about evangelical Christians. Among university professors, and a, th- a poll of 1,000 is statistically off the charts, applicable. More than half of all university professors in America today have very negative feelings about evangelical Christians. That just confirms what the Bible said. But here's what Peter wrote. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So how do you respond to hatred? Live such good lives that though they throw mud, it doesn't stick very long because there's nothing there for it to adhere to. Well, now the decree has been given and the accusations have been brought before the king. So now the king is going to call these three guys in and say, okay, uh, is this true? And if it's true, I'm going to give you another chance to show that you are loyal to me and willing to worship my statue. So here's the interrogation. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, I'll give you another chance. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Now, by the way, this furnace was probably a a smelting facility for iron ore. Had a hole in the top, had a door in the middle, and a place where they could um, force air to make it hot enough to smelt the iron. That's what it was. And so now Nebuchadnezzar decides to conduct a private loyalty test for these three because he likes them. They're high-level officials. He likes them. He says, okay, come on, guys. You probably didn't hear the message. You know, I'm going to give you another chance. And here's their reply. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) You see, they don't use that smarmy phrase. Oh, king, live forever. Which is a bunch of baloney anyways. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. In other words, we're not going to deny what we did. We're not going to give you any excuses. We're not going to offer an apology. We're not going to defend ourselves. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Whoa. <laughs> uh, that make a king really happy. I'm sure to hear those words. You see, what did they do? And what did they not do? They, they didn't rationalize. They didn't compromise. They, they didn't follow the crowd. They stood alone. They had the courage of their convictions. They didn't p- employ flattery or manipulative tactics. They didn't plead for their lives. 
They were calm and poised. They didn't say, hey, you screwball or you whatever they wanted to call him, bad names. They said, you, O king. They were respectful. They didn't try to weasel out of anything. They straightforwardly acknowledged their disobedience. They stated their objections. They stood their ground. They affirmed their faith in God's ability to save. They affirmed their faith that God sometimes does not choose to save. They acknowledged God's character and they submitted themselves willingly to the will of the king and to the will of God. Wow. You've heard the name of Charles Colson, perhaps. Anyone heard of Colson? He tells this story, and it is stunning. This is a true story. In the summer of 1940, more than 350,000 soldiers, most of them British, were trapped at Dunkirk. You see the movie Dunkirk? The German forces were on their way, and they had the capacity to wipe out the British expeditionary force. And by the way, had they succeeded, we'd be all saying Heil Hitler right now. That would have been the end of the war. Germany would have won. Listen what happened. When it seemed certain that the Allied forces at Dunkirk were about to be massacred, a British naval officer cabled just three words back to London. But if not, that's all. Those words were instantly recognizable to the people who were accustomed to hearing the scriptures read in church. They knew the story from the book of Daniel. The message in those three little words was clear. The situation was desperate. The allied forces were trapped. It would take a miracle to save them, but they were determined not to give in. One simple three-word phrase communicated all that. For some reason, people still do not know why, the Axis powers hesitated. They backed off briefly, and what is known as the miracle of Dunkirk took place. British families and fishermen heard about the poignant telegram, but if not, and and they answered. They answered with merchant marine boats, with pleasure cruisers, and even with small fishing boats. They came across the channel and evacuated 350,000 troops, and it saved the war. That would have been the end, because Britain was the only one that hadn't fallen, the only country. But if not, stunning. You see, the Bible is crystal clear. Remember I said, obey and pay and pray disobey. There are times when Christians must disobey our government, but they're very clear what they are. If the government forces us to do something that God has prohibited or prohibits us from doing something that God has commanded, we disobey. We do so civilly. We take the consequences, but that's called civil disobedience. And by the way, civil disobedience is powerful, not only among Christians, but even people like David Henry Thoreau and others. Yeah, there are times when we do not obey the government. You see here in this case, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were commanded by the government to worship an idol, which the Ten Commandments themselves said, you will not do that. It was like in China, having a child and the government says, you must kill this baby. Like the Hebrew midwives in the book of Exodus, they said, we will not do that because God said, thou shalt not commit murder. No, we don't do that. We will not obey our government. Or when Peter was told, Peter and the apostles in in the New Testament by the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, do not speak anymore about this Jesus. 
They said, oh, thanks for telling us we're not going to listen to you. And they went right outside and talked about Jesus. Got arrested again. They said, no, we don't do that. We, if you tell us to do something that God has prohibited, we're not going to do it. We will civilly disobey the government. Well, what happens? In this case, God delivers them. This is verse 19. The Nebuchadnezzar was so happy with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and loved their Christian attitude. Oh, you have a different Bible than mine. The Nebuchadnezzar was furious. He had anger issues anyways. With Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. That is, his face changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. By the way, that's an expression. You can't heat something seven times hotter. That's not possible. It, it's, it's, a, it's an expression, an idiom. Make it hotter. Blow more air in that. Make that thing hotter, which is, of course, what they did. And throw, and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Um, you know what happened. Here's what happened next. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, were there not three men that we tied up and threw into the furnace? They replied, oh, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come out here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was there a hair of their heads singed. The robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Now, by the way, it was interesting when Regina asked these children, do you like that story? And one of them said, no, I would have said the same thing. I agree with that boy. I do not like this story. Here's why. It hardly ever happens. It hardly ever happens in real life. There are people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like Daniel, we're going to see in the lion's den in chapter 6. Like we find in the apostles, Peter being sprung from prison in the New Testament. There are those examples. And the Bible calls these people heroes of faith. That's found in Hebrews chapter 11. But we forget something. The Bible not only talks about heroes of faith, it also talks about superheroes of faith. And let me read about the superheroes. This is in Hebrews chapter 11 as well. In the first part of the chapter, it talks about all these people who by faith saw God do miraculous things like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But others, that's verse 35, others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And the most important phrase in the Bible, the world is not worthy of them. 
These are people who by faith followed God. And what did they get? John the Baptist. Paul beheaded. Peter crucified upside down. Isaiah sawn in two. Jeremiah thrown into a pit and exiled from his country. You see, there are heroes. People who see God answer their prayers in miraculous, mighty ways, and he does, and he still does that. Those are heroes of faith, but there's another group of people. They're very rare, and we're not even worthy to be in their presence. The world is not worthy of these people. We're not worthy. John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to untie Jesus' sandals, and I'm not worthy to be in the presence of John the Baptist. Because here's a man who faithfully followed God every step of the way. And what does he get for doing the right thing? Loses his head. Those are superheroes of faith. Those who faithfully follow God because they take God at his word. Even when they see nothing, God doesn't quote unquote come through with them. I'm like this present precious young man here. So I don't like that story because in real life, many times it doesn't seem as if God comes through, but what does come through? God sometimes doesn't protect us from evil, but what the story tells us, he will always be present with us when we go through it. And who's in the fire with them? We don't know. Some say an angel. Jewish people think it's the angel Gabriel. We, of course, think it's the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Ah, He's a pretty good one to have go with you through a fire because he knows a little bit about persecution. Well, you know how the story ends. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, this is verse 28, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut to pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. He's a piece of work, isn't that Nebuchadnezzar? He still doesn't get it. Chapter after chapter, Nebuchadnezzar is exposed to the mighty power of God. But his ego is so big, this dude can't get it. I don't know what God has to do to get through his heart. But that's what we're going to find out next week. Because God's going to get through to him in a way that's really, really interesting. But what do we learn? It seems to me that this chapter is all about worship. Eleven times in this chapter, the word worship is mentioned. And worship is about standing and falling down. First thing we see standing is an idol. And our world is full of standing idols. Money, pleasure, stuff, sports, politics, ego, education. Objects of our worship. We have standing idols everywhere around us. And what we do as human beings is we fall down, often ignorantly, to the idols of our choice. But God's people are called to take a stand against idolatry because we worship and serve God alone. Athanasius was one of the early bishops of the church. And there was a teacher named Arius who was teaching wrong things. And most of the church was following Arius. And the emperor, Emperor Theodosius, called him in and and, and said to him, Do you not realize that all the world is against you? To which Athanasius replied, Then I am against all the world. 
I'm going to stand on the truth of God's word, even if I stand alone against the world. But when we take a stand against idolatry of our world, you can expect to take a fall because it's not popular. There can be repercussions, uh, repercussions. But when we take the fall and we stand against idolatry, we stand tall with none other than Jesus himself. And how do we respond to Jesus? We fall. We fall down before him alone and worship him. I told you about people who, who made a stand, and I would like to end with a, with a man named Maximilian Kolbe. He was a Roman Catholic priest in World War II. He was imprisoned for being a priest by the Nazis, and he was put into Auschwitz. He was prisoner number 16670. And in July of 1941, one of the prisoners from Auschwitz escaped. And the prison guard decided that since one escaped, at random, 10 people would be picked to die by starvation. So he picked 10 people. One of the men was a Polish man, Francis Gajanacek, who started crying, I have a wife and children. Maximilian Kolbe stepped forward and said, I'd like to take his place. And I guess the Nazi Gestapo was having a good day that day, so we allowed that to happen. They threw them into an open pit so that everyone could hear their, scry- their cries as they died of starvation. What did Maximilian Kolbe do? He prayed for them, he ministered to them, and he sang with them. And so out of this pit where they expected to hear screams, screams of horror as they starved to death, they were hearing psalms and hymns sing. Finally, everyone died except Maximilian Kolbe. He was the last one to live. And they decided they were going to speed up the process, so they injected something into his arm and killed him. But here's a man who took a stand. A stand to step forward and take somebody else's place. Francis Gajanacek, by the way, lived. And the Roman Catholic Church decided to canonize, make a saint, Maximilian Kolbe. Pope John Paul II did that. And you know who was there when that, when that took place? The man whose life he saved. And he said, after what he did for me, taking my place, I give the rest of my life to enhance his memory. And there was one who died for us. He took our place. And all he says is, will you give the rest of your life to people to remember what I did for you? That one is Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, what a, what a great story, Heavenly Father. Thank you for letting us know about these great heroes of faith. But even more, the superheroes, the ones who faithfully follow you, no matter what happens, even if you do not come through. Thank you for that even more. But thank you above all for the fact that you came through for us on the cross when Jesus took our place. Thank you for that. Pray in his name. Amen.